Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is journalist and author John Colapinto. John is a staff writer at The New Yorker. I've been reading John's work for many years, and I'm so glad I got to sit down to talk with him about his most recent book, This is the Voice. In it, he explores the power of the human voice, stemming from a personal vocal injury that changed the way he spoke. Today, we chat about all the ways our voice reveals who we are and how much we learn about each other through how we sound. We talk about how babies catch on to language so quickly, the Kardashians and the rise of vocal fry, and the fascinating evolutionary behavior behind the human range of tones. I can't wait to share this conversation with you. Let's get right to my chat with John Colapinto. John, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me and talk with me today. I'm so excited to chat with you. Great, likewise. Thanks so much, Erica. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, interestingly, I think this topic is so fascinating for various reasons, but it's deeply fascinating just because of the conversation we're having right now. The fact that there's this deep ubiquity to the topic of your book, but it's something that we really take for granted and don't really spend a lot of time thinking about until it's not really working anymore. And I think a really great way to just dive into the conversation with you is to actually talk a little bit about the fact that the book starts with your own vocal injury and kind of, I'd love for you to unpack a little bit about the fact that you kind of ignored it until you started writing a story about Adele's vocal surgeon. And you also wrote that it, this kind of voice 
injury affected your life in ways that you weren't acknowledging. In fact, you actually said that you were speaking around the problem. So when you think yes. about voice, you know, we're usually thinking about language and words, but what was the revelation you had around voice when it came to your experience? Yeah, great question. Well, you're right. We don't think about voice. I, I I don't use this image in the book. I probably should have. It's sort of like the water that a goldfish is swimming around in in, its, in your aquarium. So it's just around us all the time. It's it's right under our nose, so to speak. So we don't see it. We're just over. We're just too darn used to it. Until something does go wrong. For me, what went wrong was 20 years ago, I was working for Rolling Stone magazine at the time. And Jan Wenner, the owner, put together a rock band of in-house you know, talent. It got out that I could at least hold a tune. I could sort of project my voice. And I was enough of a ham that I would be willing to stand in front of this band and sing these tired old rock songs by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and so on. And I was happy to do it, I have to say. And I threw myself into it with ridiculous abandon. I was 40 years old at the time and really I'd been singing all my life in an amateur capacity but never knew about proper vocal warm-up had never done one and the voice you know all this mechanism in our throat is kind of like the ligament in your knee I mean it's just made up of tissue that gets used year upon year and when you're 40 you know it started to get a little more fragile and I just oversang and I came out of the rehearsals with the raspy voice and then the night of the performance, which was in front of a lot of people. So there was extra stress. I was trying extra hard. There was some celebrities in the audience. I really drove my voice. And then I emerged with like this deeply raspy. Well, I think it was first laryngitis for several days. And then it was just this growly, gravelly voice, which I'd had in the past and it had cleared up. This didn't. And really I, and then it didn't and didn't. And then I actually ran into a woman in my, this, building I live in, I was new to the building. She heard me speak in the elevator and said, oh, you've got a badly messed up voice. And I tried to brush it off. She said, no, 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 I, I teach, you know, Broadway singers and actors how to use their voice. I mean, I know a badly damaged voice when I hear one. And I, you know, again, I shrugged it off until she mentioned that it might be something other than like just injury to a vocal cord. She suggested it might be like a cancerous growth. She didn't use those words, but she used a euphemism. Off I went to the doctor the next day. He scoped my throat. Thank God it wasn't cancer or anything. It was instead precisely what she thought it was, which was a vocal polyp. That's really scar tissue on the, on the edge of a vocal cord. It's created by a vocal cord bleeding as mine had done. And yeah, I, I left it alone. You know, I, I said to the surgeon, I said, you know, can you kind of snip it off right now and I'll just be on my way? He said, no, I'll be checking into the hospital for several days. We'll be putting you under anesthetic. It'll be a complex operation with microscopes and so on and so forth. And you'll be, have to be silent for six weeks afterward. That, an impossibility for me. So I, I ignored it for like, what was it? I don't know, 10 years or something. And maybe it was longer. I, I sort of just thought, well, I've got a gravelly voice. And then I was doing a story about the vocal surgeon who saved Adele's career, Stephen Zytel's up in Boston. He's doing the piece for the New Yorker. And Zytel's, the minute he heard my voice on the phone, when I called him to ask if he wanted to do a story, he said, oh, sounds like you're dealing with a pretty bad operation <laughs> yourself. I thought, oh boy, you know, I didn't fool him. <laughs> and, then, and then I get up to Boston and he will not take no for an answer. So I, he goes, I want to look in your throat. <laughs> you know, Steve, I'm doing a story. It wouldn't be appropriate. It might almost look like a quid pro quo. Oh, man, I'm not treating a dude. I just got to look at it. He's like, that kind of guy. So, you know, I just got to look at it. You know, I'm fascinated. I've never heard such a bad voice. <laughs> and, and so I did. <laughs> 
<laughs> he scopes the thing and he says, man, that's big. It's bigger than Adele's. It's bigger than many that I've ever seen. I think I'd been re-injuring it. And a thing, to your point, you know, he said, this is changing your life in ways that you're not facing. Okay, you can't sing. Well, you're not a rock star. You're a writer. What does it matter? He said, but it's when you talk, you are doing things unconsciously to actually smooth out your voice. One of the main things he said I was doing was kind of dropping my pitch to, to sort of find a place where the vocal cord would vibrate relatively normally where you wouldn't hear as much rattle and rasp, but he said, you're kind of keeping it in that register. And I'll never forget what he said. You're speaking through a veil of monotone was his point. And he said, it's really by riding those highs and lows that we give our voice expressiveness and expression. Now I can actually, I think, impose more expression on my voice than he was giving me credit for, or maybe I've just gotten better in the years since I did that story. Because one of the things about our voices is we're always unconsciously sort of reteaching ourselves to fix problems and do new stuff with it. Or, and I, so, you know, he, I came away from this. He also said to me, you know, clearly, John, it's bad enough that I bet that, you know, if you're in a noisy environment, you kind of avoid talking. You probably avoid noisy environments anyway because of it. I said, yeah, if they're noisy enough, I don't, I know I'll have an extra raspy voice by trying to speak over noise. And that sort of put in my mind that I was kind of like behaving a bit more introvertedly. It was changing certain things about myself that are, you know, I'm kind of extroverted. So I thought, boy, gee, what with like bleeding the emotion out of my voice, kind of becoming more introverted sounding, not to mention that when it's raspy and rattly, I sound like I smoke six packs of cigarettes a day and drink a bottle of bourbon, which isn't really my reality anymore. And so, I, I, you know, just now to sort of get to the nut of your question, I realized this was changing everything about me, about my behavior, and about the way I thought about myself, the way I heard myself. And, and that's all from like a little tiny bump on a vocal cord. And that's when I said to myself, oh boy, you know, we are not thinking enough about just the timbre and sound and tone and music of our voice. It's kind of everything. I think you laid into some really interesting concepts around language acquisition and tonality. And I'm really curious about how infants or babies kind of learn to vocalize language from their parents or caretakers so quickly. I think one of the researchers in the book kind of called them linguistic global citizens at birth. And as a doula, which is the work I oh, yeah. was doing for about 10 years or so prior to starting Loom and, 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 and other things, you know, you do notice a certain tonality to, to the cries and the kind of intonations of, of a baby. They're very particular. And I think when you have a lot of access to young babies, you start to be able to notice kind of the variability between between them. Well, I mean, first of all, that's fascinating to hear. And I wish I'd interviewed you because that, that was kind of controversial in the scientific literature, whether or not people, parents, doulas, babysitters could discern specific emotions from a baby's cry. So a lot of people did sort of lab experiments where they said, oh, you know, if you play these particular cries to parents, they actually can't, you know, in a cold clinical environment, like filling in like little check boxes, they can't really tell hunger from pain or worry. Now, but you're telling me something different. And that fascinates me because science can only penetrate so far into this whole business because 
someone listening to a recording of a baby and being asked to fill out a form, you know, is not in the moment of being a parent or caregiver where there's something on the line, a baby's crying. You're not filling out. It's a real baby crying. It might be your baby crying or a baby you're responsible for. And then other things kick in, you know, those discernments between pain and hunger. So to your point again, you know, I never really bought this idea that we don't hear specific emotions. I think we do. My book, as you know, it kind of focuses mostly, although not exclusively on, on babies and how they actually do this other extraordinary thing, which is move from those cries, those instinctual cries to shaping that acoustic signal into this thing that we call language. And because we call it language, we've kind of, I mean, somehow we think, I think we think of language as being like grammatical structures that are written on a piece of paper because we think of language that way. We think of it as this like complex thing that happens up in our brain because Noam Chomsky told us that's what it is. It's all this brain work. Certainly it is brain work. It can be words on a page, but what it was with our species when we began and what it is for babies is sound. It's mm -hmm. literally sound that it's hearing from a mum. I say mother because really the baby starts getting it in the final trimester of its development in the, in the womb. The baby is hearing the voice through the abdominal wall, but also picking it up through vibrations through the mother's skeleton, literally. So it's setting the amniotic fluid that the baby is in, into vibration. So voice is being heard. Try to picture, you know, someone in a, in a sensory deprivation chamber in the absolute dark with nothing touching its body except the, the liquid. And imagine that liquid vibrating against the body in time with human voice and speech. And with an intensity that goes up and down according to how loudly the mother is speaking or how emotionally or how softly the baby is getting so much. And, and, and so that's the only sensory stimulation it's really getting is the voice. We don't think about that enough. Then the baby is born into a welter of sounds, but one of the sounds, the sound that it is most sensitive to and most interested in is that mother's voice that it's been hearing for those weeks and final weeks in the womb. The father's voice is less important as science can pick it up. I mean, it becomes important in, in when the baby's born, but really the mother's voice is doing so much early imprinting. So this notion of how the baby starts learning to speak, learning language, you know, is just utterly fascinating. The baby is born a global citizen in that the baby can hear every single sound that humans make in languages, the 7,000 languages around the world. We don't, I don't know if we really think about how unusual those sounds can be. A French like, like the sort of way that they, they kind of block their nose or they make an N sound or certain sound. You know, Swahili, I don't know Swahili, but I'm going to bet dollars to donuts. There's some sounds in there that are very different than our English sounds. German has different sounds. Now, it used to be believed that babies actually learn the different sounds by listening. And in a way that's kind of wrong. What happens is they're born with the full pilot of sounds and the ones that they select as important are the ones that they're hearing from their parents around them. Why is that important? Because we're, as babies, we're born with these brains that are kind of over, they have too much wiring. They can be wired to understand any language, any sounds, but what, what you really need is an efficient brain. So you've got to cut away wires and connections that are unnecessary.
So the way that we sort of develop the correct wiring is through this reinforcement. Parental voices speaking, us hearing the sounds that are relevant to our language, and then what, like extra strengthening those wires. They literally grow. It's quite amazing. The neurons that are joined by these wires, the wires that join them literally grow like a, a covering, almost like the insulation on a wire. It's a fatty stuff called myelin, and it super speeds up the electric charge that zooms along. And the other sounds unneeded, like the sound in French, if you're English, die away. They wither. You don't need them. This is why Japanese people mix up R and L. So if they're saying rake, they might say lake or vice versa. Why? They simply did not hear a, a a strongly distinguished R and L sound as babies, because Japanese doesn't happen to have that strong thing. We, as as people that speak English, we heard a very distinctly articulated one. So we both wire in the the, the ability to hear that sound, and then as we start to babble as babies, as that 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 just what seems like fun babbling, what we're really doing is rehearsing those sounds we're we're starting to well first we begin by making random sounds and then we make a r sound or a l sound or for french a n sound we go oh i know that one and we repeat it so we start going la 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 and baby and parents think it's cute da 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 because that da sound one of the earliest ones we make it's kind of simple to do that that tongue just against the back of the teeth and then pulling it off those are the increments of language that are eventually assembled into words. And that's a whole other process. But yeah, it's, it's all about, again, not, you know, not words on a page. This is, these are sound vibrations in the air that babies pick up and then learn how to do with this extraordinary vocal apparatus. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the US. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code Inner Circle to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's interesting to hear you talk about the focus of language as words on a page or, you know, linear syntax. But I think what's really interesting about that way of seeing words is I think it has a lot to do with and again, I'm, I'm making an assumption that English is your first language, but I think when English is your first language, I think there's more of a, a connection to words on a page. Whereas in other languages, there is much more tonality and complexity to how words are exchanged, like how we verbalize or vocalize to each other. The English language, it lacks like the, rom like the 
like the rhythmicity or the oh yeah. like the musicality that other oh. languages have Un unbelievably smart insight because that that's exactly right i mean it's it's like a few of the other like european languages English has none of the of the tonal contour of, for instance, Chinese, where a single syllable like ma means a completely different thing depending on whether it's said at a in a, in a low tone, a rising to 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 lowering tone, in you know, a high to dropping to, and so on. It's it's how that syllable is sung in effect. The other thing about English is that it is actually a guy that wrote about the about languages back at the turn of the last century, Otto Jesperson, pointed out that that. English is sort of the most business-like of languages. And I don't think he meant it as a compliment. It's got a kind of plodding, you know, kind of chunky, blah, 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 blah about it. And lo and behold, look how it's become the global language of business. It's just, it's kind of work a day. It's, it's utilitarian. Now, in the hands of a Shakespeare, it can do astonishing stuff. But yes, it's it's kind of tendency as a kind of plod. I want to talk about accents and I want to talk about kind of the complexity and power behind that. And, you know, oftentimes we're so unaware of how much we're transmitting and detecting from others upon hearing their accent and, 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 and what we try to do with them upon hearing <laughs> their yes. accent. And so I'm, I'm really curious, you know, in your book, you point this out a few times, but, you know, as soon as we start to speak, we're drawing conclusions conclusions about gender, socioeconomic status. Why are we doing that? And, and, and what exactly is that related to? My first instinct is to go way back and talk about our, our evolution as a species, you know, as, as language developed in our species. And, you know, we were tribal, we had groups that were, you know, territorial and so on. And part, part of how we figure out whether or not someone is someone we know is simply by, you know, looking at their face and saying, is that a familiar face to me? Do I, do I know that face? But we also hear their, their voice is an amazingly good way of detecting it. And they've only very recently discovered that there's an entire sort of region of the brain that's devoted to distinguishing voices very closely. It's, it's directly cabled, literally wiring lots of it to the part that recognizes faces. So face and voice are, are linked together in the brain as a recognition system. It would have been very, very good for survival, knowing if it was dark out and you couldn't see the person, oh, I know that voice, it's mum, not an invader or whatever. So you know, you've got voices kind of hooking up and in this way of showing who's friend or foe. As society becomes more civilized, quote unquote, and you, you suddenly have people not attacking each other because they've walked onto each other's territory, but instead they're trying to distinguish, hmm, you know, do I, do I share this person's values? Do I, you know, do his politics or her politics? I mean, you know, how do I, how do I feel about this person? When you have migrations of people into areas where other people had already been settled, like in the Western states of the United States, when, you know, when the West opened up and you had like people from the South sort of going into the West and you had people from the New York, upper New York state and Pennsylvania moving West. And all of a sudden those little differences in voice become very, very important. And, and I, and I wish I could say that we as a species, you know, welcome delightfully, the, you know, the rainbow of human difference, but unfortunately we don't really uh, often. I mean, one of the people that persons that made the greatest observation about this was George Bernard Shaw when he wrote Pygmalion. Because here you've got an island, which is where English literally started. So you've got this, you know, this island where 
everybody is speaking the same language, but they're speaking it so differently, little region to little region with these amazingly different accents that totally hierarchize. That's not a word. I made it up. Put into. <laughs> I just. I just. I, I'm taking. I'm taking it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going for it. Just going for it. And then that's the great thing about language too, and voice. Like you kind of you yeah. knew what I meant. Yeah. But yes, it puts people into a hierarchy, a social hierarchy, and. You, he famously said, you know, an Englishman can't open his mouth without making another, another Englishman hate or despise him. He didn't say mildly dislike him or sort of suspect him. He uses those frighteningly loaded words, hate and despise. So he, you know, was acutely aware of the prejudices, the bigotry that we, that we build into accent, into voice. And that's a lamentable, a lamentable thing, but it's, but it's a reality. I'm curious how, that has kind of overlaid into our current pandemic experience of interacting over Zoom and and the and the phone. I am a veteran voice noter or voice memoer, and I have been for I don't know maybe six or seven years. Whenever iOS brought that opportunity to iPhone or put that as a feature. Mm-hmm. I've used it. And one of the reasons why I did that was because when I was working with my, with my clients, they would have these questions and I would have a pretty nuanced answer. And I would find myself really fatigued by texting them back these kind of anthemic answers. And I was just like, I'll just send you a voice note. And, you know, my, my clients would always share with me that it just was so supportive to hear my voice and to be able to then integrate the information along with the tone to help them feel more at ease around whatever the situation was that we were navigating. And so it was a really kind of easy pivot for me in the pandemic when we really couldn't see anyone anymore (laughs) for a while to just start voice noting people and people being like, oh, I've never even used this before. And so I'm really curious, again, just with the pandemic, how, like, how have you seen voice and our kind of like collective inquiry around voice shift with the pandemic? Well, yeah, very interesting question. I mean, we've been so isolated, as you say, and our our communications have tended, uh, they have been electronic. I mean, I did a book tour for This Is The Voice that was entirely done from the closet I'm currently speaking to you in. And so, it, you know, everybody that I was meeting, sometimes we would do it without cameras on. I'm glad you and I have cameras on. So I was only hearing a voice. You know, that was interesting. I mean, it, it in some ways, it sort of means you've got to really rely on the voice to put yourself across. You can't just do it with the endless hand gestures that I'm always using. I'm trying to think in my personal life. I mean, I think I was gosh, I, I certainly became much more of a texter. I wish I had been as smart as you and started to use the voice notes because it's so much more human. You can you can put across, I mean, I, I think we've all learned long ago, don't attempt irony like in an email, especially to your boss. You know, you say something <laughs> like, like, gee, I really hate this job. Ha ha. You know what I mean? It's like, you do? Or what? You know what I'm saying? Like that just doesn't work. I know the emoticon is supposed to smooth it over. Forget it. <laughs> Texting is probably worse. You know, I, I'm really a robot now when I text. Like I'm, I'm an, I just sort of, yes, no. How, oh, how are you? <laughs> yeah. but, but you know, because we are doing so much with our with our voice, it's just so so beautiful. I mean, and but I guess yeah, the combined thing of being in a room with someone, really in a room with them, and using our voices and and setting the air around us into vibration, you know, mutually. I, I've never really thought about what that 
how that might even change conversation. It's, it, it's interesting. One of the things my book addresses is how you and I are doing what we are currently doing, which is really playing tennis with our, with our thoughts, which we're then, you know, turning into words, which we're, you know, beaming back and forth to each other just to switch the metaphor a bit, but we're sort of timing it. So you're asking a question as I fall silent and I'm, I'm picking up when you want to speak partly through looking at you, but even if we couldn't see each other, like as in a phone call, we kind of know we overlap. Scientists have discovered much less than we think accidentally overlap, I should say. But yeah, that this, this pandemic, one of the things that I think it's done by isolating us is and, and sort of pushing us onto text and email is I think we're a little less aware of each other's mental health and emotional state because we pick up so much of that from voice. And it's so, it's so comforting for someone to, to sort of support us if they hear something in our voice that we may not even be deliberately putting across, but that we're lonely, that we're scared. And, you know, if you really are just texting, that's a whole level of sort of mutual texting back. That's a whole level of mutual support that, that really is missing. And, and now, you know, endlessly, I, you, you've opened up such an interesting topic, but you know, I, I have a very good friend who funnily enough, we've only texted. We've never jumped over into like a phone call even. And it's been great. And he's a writer too. And as writers, we're both pretty good at expressing. We can even do irony with each other. Um, (laughs) I think, I hope, I haven't heard from him in a while. Maybe I did something, but I freaking miss him. Like I miss him. I miss his voice. You know, I miss seeing the dude. He's a great guy. And so, yeah, I think, you know, it's, 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 you miss the voice, weirdly enough. You miss, I mean, actually I'll, I'll just toss this in as well. My father died oh gosh, so long ago now, 1985. I was 26. And I can look at pictures of him. I cannot listen to his voice. I mean, I've been afraid to. There's a couple of places where there's some recordings. And I think, and I mean, this many years later, I'm like, I just don't think I'll do it because he's going to be in the room for a sec and then it's going to hurt when I turn it off. So uh, yeah, I mean, absences, you know, the, the, the sense of someone really being there, I think, mm. is with voice. And you've made me understand that by asking that great question. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I love you sharing about not wanting to hear the sound of 
you know, of your father's voice, because I grew up most of my life singing. I think if my life had taken a very different direction, I probably would have gone into like musical theater. I'm very much like, I still sing. I sing all the time, just at home, whenever I'm doing things. I sing to soothe as well. Oftentimes I know that, you know, my partner will be like, oh, you're, you're, you're singing. And I'm like, oh, I don't even know I'm doing it. You know, it's just a part of like the rhythm to get through the day. But what's interesting is I have a similar you know, aversion to hearing certain people's voices or going back and watching old video or listening to a certain song, because I know not just the, you know, the instruments, but the actual voice like does have a specific trigger within my system, you know, optically what's happening when you see a photograph is, has no resonance no physical resonance there's no acoustic component right but then when you hear a voice you have acoustic sonic resonance there's vibration and that accesses the body in a very particular way that is more intense for those that are sensitive to that there's people who be like it wouldn't make a difference to me you know here i I was sort of choosing a highly charged obviously highly charged emotional example because I'm sensitized to it. He was my father, but you're pointing out that some people, and I think this is a hundred percent, of course, true, have an extra sensitivity to voice generally that are having a sort of, yes. And I suppose they end up as singers. I mean, it would, it would certainly stand to reason that my, my wife, for instance, is a painter. It never ceases to amaze me what she can see in a visual field. We'll be watching a movie. She'll point something out on the edge of the screen, but she's also seeing the actor over there. I don't get it. The colors she sees, you know, a, a lot of this is kind of a biology is destiny thing. If you have a super heightened visual acuity, you might just end up as a painter. You know, you're responding to this overload of emotion and, and, and even intellectual stimulation you get from the visual field. You're talking about having this acute ability here. And I never thought of it. You know, I, I wish we had Bach around to, to check his ears because they would be, I suspect, a little better than most people's. And yeah, I, I think, and I love that idea that some people are, are just more attuned to voice. Makes you think of, I didn't put this in the book, but I wanted to interview a detective because one of the things that they do, if they're good detectives, is they're very good at hearing a lie. They're not infallible, but they're very good because they just spend their lives listening for that. And they, and to your point, actually, maybe that's why they go into it in the first place, into police work. Mm. We like to we like to exercise our talents. We like to bring them to fruition and realize them. And if you're kind of good at scoping out behavior and listening and looking, but, you know, hearing. And it's actually, I think, one of the reasons why detectives will just kind of ask the same question over and over. They're just waiting to hear you say it. They're trying to hit you up. And I mean, and there's sort of subtleties of that, that I kind of get into in the book, not in the detective context so much as just how all conversation works. If you and I agree with each other. Yeah. Like when I stop and you speak, you will speak at the same pitch as I left off at. Whereas if you disagree, you will kind of jump up. You will kind of like jump in and be at a slightly higher pitch. And if, if we're both sort of boringly agreeing with each other so much that it's kind of not even worth stating, the person comes in on a pitch even lower. Yeah. 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 So, so total agreement is like, you know, or agreement is like on the same pitch, but it's like, if it's, you know, too obvious to state, the person can, can come in lower. 
But I suspect detectives are hearing all of that in ways that I don't. As someone who resides in LA, I think it's important to dig in and talk a little bit about vocal fry. Oh, gee, and I had no idea. The minute you said LA, I thought, gee, what, what's she going to mention? And I knew, I knew right <laughs> up. I thought, oh, if, if this ain't the vocal fry question. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, really, it was, it's kind of been dated when, when linguists noticed it linguists being people that study language in all its aspects, spoken and written. And around 2010, they started to write these papers in scientific journals. Like quite a few papers came out that very year saying, why are young women doing this fry? Why are they crackling their voice in this way, dropping it into this pitch? And it sort of snowballed. It, it, a guy on NPR actually started to talk about it. A, a guy with a great language blog started to blog. And it, it became sort of this thing. You would even hear it talked about on news shows. So I actually thought, well, okay, what my instinct was that Kim Kardashian had to have some importance in this because she's quite the proficient vocal fryer. So I looked at when the show debuted 2007 three years before and i actually noticed that there was a couple of references early in 2007 to vocal fry but the, the references peaked in 2010 when the show was at its absolute zenith in popularity everybody was watching it now i mean all of this is speculation but i say to myself why would young women in particular suddenly catch this contagion and because voices are very contagious, styles are very contagious. Why, if it's Kim, would it be contagious then in 2010? And my feeling very much was that knowing that what vocal fry does is reduce the voice to the lowest pitch that it can achieve, male or female, it's literally the lowest you can get. But the thing that it does is it erases all what's called prosody, which is the music of the voice, the up and down emotional roller coaster of, of speech. So if you are crackling away at a low kind of a really low pitch and it's not going up and down and showing emotion, you can sound very blase. You can sound very in control. In other words, your lawnmower is never going to be as nice as mine, you know, neighbor. Like, I, this is it. I got it. And so Kim had like this total in control feeling. Well, what was happening in 2010? We were two years into one of the worst economic depressions we've had since uh, the Great Depression. You know, the, the subprime mortgage had market had collapsed in 2008. It plunged us into this chaos. People were furious and emotional about the bailout to banks and so on. There was, there was, and, and young women really, I have to say, were particularly vulnerable, I think, economically. I mean, women have it, have it a pretty rough anyway in job markets. So here they are as single young women wondering, can I get a job? I mean, what's going on here now? you know, young women wouldn't be the first people to project a, a sort of ideal personality through the voice. We all do it. We kind of perfect ourselves. We speak the way we want people think people want to hear us speaking. So my guess at that state, when I was sort of poking around in this amazing phenomenon, because it's so, it's sort of epidemic in its proportions, was that women were responding to their economic insecurity and fear in a way that, that was modeled by this woman that was above it all, was safe, 
and who was charismatic and who they liked. I'm not trying to be mean about Kim, you know, so it's, it's, it's not people mimic celebrities that way all the time. Men do it with their swaggery walks. They're trying to look like whoever Jack Nicholson back in the day or something. So this was kind of a contagion maybe. But then I, as I sort of dug deeper, I began to think, wait, this is not a celebrity uh, contagion. Those end, those go away. They don't, they don't get bigger. So if this was a 2010 phenomenon around the peaking popularity of a show, why is it still existing in 2020 when I'm writing the book, 2019? And my feeling very much then was, oh, wait a sec. You know, what are we in the middle of right now? Well, we were in the middle of the Trump years. I wrote the book across those Trump years. And we were in this explosive Me Too movement. We were, we were really in the most exciting, dramatic phase of feminism that I think ever has happened. I mean, the 70s was big, but that, the, the Me Too movement was extraordinary and continues to be. And really, so this then made me look at what, what is the vocal fry? How are we doing it? Well, what we're doing is we're stiffening our vocal cords so that the air pushed up from our lungs doesn't pass through them as readily, as easily. Our, our vocal cords are kind of just fluidly rippling when we, when we make noise with our voice. But here they're tight and they're tense and it's coming through and it's a growl. Well, that's literally, we inherited that, that laryngeal muscular gymnastic maneuver from dogs and cats and lions that growl. And when, the minute I thought of that, I thought, oh, women are unconsciously stiffening their vocal cords in this evolutionarily salient way to make a sound that is a growl, that is a threat. It's a threat sound, I, be, I began to realize. It, it also helps in that it lowers the pitch uh, of the voice so that men can less easily interrupt, can less easily perhaps mansplain. But I, the, the growl suddenly seemed like the most salient feature of that sound and it's it's a way of saying i'm serious like back off i'm serious now and i i actually compared it to the 1970s motto i am woman hear me roar roars as i point out in the book are theatrical they're they're kind of a big bluff it's what you do before well before you fight before an animal fights but when they growl everyone knows this about a dog if it starts growling oh man is it time to back off you're gonna get bitten so growls are, are evolutionarily, in terms of mammalian messaging through voice, extremely important and hostile sounds, frankly. And, and this is not to, again, not, you know, not to be critical of women. I think we were well past the point where women had every right to express anger in, in actually a rather civilized way. They're not, they're not yelling. They're just growling a little. And so that, that's really, you know, to sort of to go from the sublime to the ridiculous or reverse ridiculous to the sublime, you know, the, the, the conversation around fry can seem funny and it, and it is until you really dig in and you suddenly think, wow, that might be saying something about one of the most important social movements currently in existence. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. 
Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. One of the episodes that I that I did was with these two incredible computer scientists and also kind of data architects just talking about how we have such little data on women and so much of the data architecture is very much mired in patriarchy and very much through that lens. And so hearing you talk about, you know, the larynx and the throat, you know, I think something else to kind of just put into the crucible to stir the pot, as they, as they say, is that, you know, the throat and the pelvic floor are deeply connected. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for both women and men, non-binary people have a pelvic floor, they have those muscles. But I think for women, when you do feel a sense of tension or dis-ease, there, there is a desire to constrict the pelvic floor to tighten the pelvic floor and that that connects to the throat and it's actually a really interesting thing that shows up a lot in labor you know there's a little bit of kind of anecdotal information around probably wouldn't be anecdotal if it wasn't on about women but it's anecdotal mm-hmm. for now mm-hmm. that you know if you keep your jaw clenched during labor it can really impede your pelvis from being able to fully relax and to release the baby further down. So when you're talking about this growl and this tension, you know, behind the, the tonality and the sound of vocal fry, it really made me think that there is probably, you know, a pelvic floor component to this, especially thinking about the advent of that show, you know, 2007, you know, Kim, Kardashian, Paris Hilton, all both of those women were very early in that reality TV space and were figuring out, you know, how to have that kind of visibility and, and how to kind of be inside of it. And so it's a, it's a very uncomfortable experience, even if you know, this is what I'm going to do. And so I really just love, you know, building out, you know, a much more emotional, you know, trauma informed, protective lens to to the to vocal fry. And I think the, there should be even more exploration around it because I think if we keep digging, you know, bringing in the macro zeitgeist and then, you know, bringing in just the longstanding, you know, kind of chronic trauma of living in a cis female body, I think there's a lot that's, that's there oh. that's like yet to be explored. Oh, would that I had spoken to you before I wrote that chapter because my God, that's fascinating. So you chose to not do anything about your vocal polyp. And I'm really curious why you decided to not fix it. What made you want to just keep it? Yeah, it it seems particularly silly given that I was writing a book about the incredible importance of the human voice and and the wonders uh, of its expressiveness. And here I've got this voice whose expressiveness has to some degree been reduced. The other theme of the book is that our voices are us in a way they are as unique as our as our fingerprint they are they are somehow encoding our our personalities and i think i felt that you know 
this voice that I have is expressive of the 62 years that I've been on the planet, the amount of talking I do as a very verbal guy. You know, the fact that I, maybe there's some recklessness people would hear in a voice that's got some graveliness to it. Whether or not that's the recklessness of, of hard living or whether it's a guy that, you know, thought he was a rock star when he was a 40, 40 years old and wouldn't shut up, kept singing stupidly, probably slightly off tune, who knows? Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not telling. <laughs> but, I mean, so all of this is kind of packed into the sound, I guess, of my voice, I, I, I began to think. And also, I mean, you know, I'm a writer, so my, my, my obligation in this world, I think, is to think about the voice on the page, that, that voice. John Updike said that people talk their books away. Writers have to be careful not to talk them away. He himself was actually very, very sort of loquacious and extroverted in speech. And he sort of taught himself to, mm, shut up, don't talk your books away, be quiet. And, and that was somewhere in my mind. I thought, gee, you know, if my voice gets any more wonderful, I won't shut up even worse. Right. I mean, that was kind of distantly somewhere in my mind. It was like, John, you're a writer. It's about the page. And yeah, and I guess th those were the reasons. I thought, you know what? My voice has a patina. It's got a, it's like a nice, it's like a leather bag that's got some scuffs in it. You know, it's like that belt that looked great when it was shiny and new, but then it's, you know, it's got some weathered look to it. And you think that's kind of all right. So that's where I'm trying to think of my voice. And, and I guess that's why I left it alone. I really support embracing our imperfections and I've loved listening to your voice for however long we've been speaking. It's been wonderfully fun and I've been just jotting down words that you said that I love that I haven't heard in a long time, like loquacious and zenith and great things and it's been super <laughs> wonderful. I'm so glad that you made some time to talk oh, with me. I'm so glad we talked and, and I, I, I'm going to return the compliment. What a fabulous voice you have. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with John Colopinto. I loved learning about all the amazing aspects of the human voice and how it makes us who we are. Be sure to get a copy of John's fascinating book, This is the Voice. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.